Welcome to the GBC Sermon Podcast, a weekly podcast from Gaimia Baptist Church in Sydney, Australia. I'm Mark Rader, Senior Pastor here at GBC, and I trust that wherever you're listening to this, you will also hear the invitation of God today. Just a reminder about the Big Three podcast as well, which is a midweek deep dive into three questions raised by our congregations who have listened to this same sermon. As I said, it comes out on Wednesdays. We'd love for you to listen to that wherever you listen to podcasts and continue to consider and think about the things raised in this passage. This week, we conclude our series in Revelation 2 and 3 that we've called Seven Letters, Seven Lessons, in which we've been listening to the discipleship lessons that Jesus has for the churches, not just in the first century, but today. In this final letter to the community of faith at Laodicea, we hear one final word. And like all last words, it contains a very important lesson. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, can I encourage you to turn to Revelation chapter 3. We're going to pick up in verse 14 in just a couple of minutes' time. We have come to the last of these letters, the seventh letter to the seventh church. And just before I read it for us and we reflect on the discipleship lesson that it contains, I just want to remind you about something that I've said just about every week so far. And that is that these churches, these seven churches, are historical churches Uh, that represent real communities of faith. And we're going to draw out some of the very real circumstances of Laodicea in a few moments' time. But they're also representative that these churches have been selected not as the only seven churches in the Roman province of Asia Minor, but as seven churches whose struggles are, shall I say, typical of the struggles that the church everywhere and everywhere experiences. And this is the last church. And so not only is it a part of the overall pattern, but being last, it has a fairly important final word for us. As I've outlined a number of times during this series, the middle three churches, the church at Pergamum and Thyatira and Sardis, are churches that are doing well in some ways, but have a pretty significant thing that Jesus wants them to correct. The church at Pergamum is reminded to kind of check their blind spots, to to be aware of the teaching that is infiltrating their church. The church at uh, Thyatira is reminded of the importance of total loyalty to Jesus, to be yoked entirely to him and not kind of try try to have it both ways. The church at Sardis is reminded of the importance of reading the times and knowing what is most important given the return of Jesus. The the second and and the sixth church, the church at Smyrna and Philadelphia, are both at one level struggling. They're both facing hardship and opposition. And the church at Smyrna is reminded that they have everything they need in Jesus to turn their eyes upon him and allow him to fill their horizon as they go through what they are about to go through. The church at Philadelphia is reminded of the open door, access to the very uh, throne room of God to receive all that they need to endure. And the first and the seventh churches are both churches that are in danger of losing their identity as communities of faith, losing their identity as churches. But there's a little bit more to it than that. Not only is the church at Ephesus uh, threatened with the removal of their lampstand and the church at Laodicea threatened with being spat out of Jesus' mouth, they also form the first word and the last word. So the church at Ephesus, uh, they are charged with um, having forsaken their first love. 
uh, as we looked at in that, uh, in that letter, this is a, ref a reference to um, the lack of public evidence of their faithfulness to Jesus. This becomes the um, one thing that Jesus kind of um, assesses and evaluates all these churches against. And as the first word that prepares us for all that we encounter. But this last word also makes, a, a, I guess, the final statement. Uh, it draws our attention to an extension of our public witness. And that has to do with our purpose. Why are we engaged in public witness? So with that kind of background, let me read this to you, and then we'll dive into the church at Laodicea. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So, because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I'm rich. I've acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich, and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness, and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, of all the letters, this one may be the most familiar to you, uh, if only because of some of the really strident language, this idea of the lukewarm water being spat out of Jesus' mouth, the image of Jesus standing at the door and knocking in order to come in and eat with us. These images are, are quite powerful for us. But I do want to draw our attention to um, the two aspects in this letter that relate specifically to the historical setting of the church in Laodicea. So I think they hold for us the, uh, the centerpiece of this discipleship lesson. So to begin with, let me draw your attention to uh, the contrast between what the church says about themselves and what Jesus says about them in relationship to their wealth. Now, what's really helpful to note is the things that Jesus lists here, uh, their wealth, uh, their, um, the textiles, and the eye solve are all related to the circumstances of Laodicea as a city. Laodicea had a very strong and vibrant economy. Once again, we see that the economics of Revelation comes to the fore. Uh, they had a strong banking industry, thus the reference to gold. They had um, a, a very significant textile industry, although instead of producing white cloth, they had a darker cloth that was their kind of the, the primary export from their region. And they also seemed to have a bit of an ophthalmology industry. Uh, they they uh, apparently had some people who um, were well known as eye doctors, although we should probably be careful about what an eye doctor looked like 2,000 years ago and what they looked like today. Now, the area was known for Phrygian powder, uh, which was used as a salve for eyes. Jesus takes these, uh, these um, industries of the city itself and applies them to the church. And there's probably a point of application for us there. 
if we wanted to reflect on how our context shapes our, um, our own journey of faith, I think that might be a fruitful place to reflect. But I don't think it's the primary essence for us here. So Jesus uh, draws their attention to things that they would have known. Uh, banking, uh, textiles, the, the, the uh, ophthalmology industry, draws attention to them and then basically says, you say you're rich, you say you're well-clothed, you say you can see, but in reality, you cannot. Instead, Jesus counsels them to buy from him gold refined in the fire, white clothes to wear, and salve to put on their eyes. And I think each of those you know, has, a, has a connection to faithful witness, uh, in, in the Old Testament in particular, the idea of the people of Israel being compared to gold that has been refined. And the, the refining process is through affliction and hardship and tribulation. So, for example, in Isaiah 48.10, it talks about how God has refined his people through affliction. You find in, say, the letter to the church at Sardis, and when we looked at that letter, we reflected on how uh, white robes are described and how they're used in the book of Revelation. Uh, and in a couple of places, it's very clear that the white robes are given to those who are faithful to the point of death for Jesus' name. Uh, even the, uh, the, the uh, symbol of eyesight may actually have um, a bit of a connection with suffering as the way to victory. In Mark's gospel, in chapter 8, there, there's a really significant turning point. You could say that it's the turning point of the entire book. And that's when Peter finally acknowledges and recognizes that Jesus is the Messiah. And if you know that story, you'll know that it, it's immediately followed by Jesus telling his disciples that, yes, I am the Messiah, and that the Messiah must suffer and die. And Peter rebukes Jesus. It's like he's, he's figured out some of it, but not all of it. He, he still needs a more revelation. And what's interesting is that the story just prior to Peter's confession is this kind of odd little story where Jesus heals a man who was blind in Bethsaida. And what's strange about the story is that the man requires two touches. Jesus touches his eyes and says, can you see? And the man says, well, I can, but they look like, you know, people look like trees walking around. And so Jesus touches him a second time and then he can see clearly. And, and apart from the strangeness of Jesus having to touch someone twice to bring about the complete healing, which is odd, it seems that this story has been placed prior to Peter's confession as kind of a symbol for what the disciples require as well. They've understood that Jesus is the Messiah, yes, certainly, but they haven't yet seen clearly that the Messiah must suffer. Whether you're talking about the refining process through affliction or the white robes given to those who have endured faithfully or the second touch to recognize and understand that the way of Jesus, the path of following Jesus is one of suffering, all three of these things seem to kind of plug into the situation for the church at Laodicea. And what seems to be, at least on the surface, is that the people of Laodicea um, are self-sufficient. They feel like they have everything they need. And when we looked at the church in Philadelphia and talked about the open door, the door into the very throne room of God uh, that Jesus holds open for us, so that we can receive all that we need. And yet there's a reason why people sometimes spend their time in the foyer or the lobby. 
And it's because they don't realize their true need. And again, I think there'd be some valuable insights that would come from reflecting on uh, what it means for us to be self-sufficient and the implications for our discipleship, a recognition of our true deep needs rather than being satisfied with what we may have in, our, in, a, in a worldly sense. But I actually believe that there's something else going on here. It's related to self-sufficiency, but it's a little bit different. And it actually has to do with the, the purpose of these things. In other words, why does Jesus encourage them to buy gold from him? Why does he encourage them to receive white robes from him? Why does he encourage them to receive salve so that they can see? What's the purpose of that? And I think it relates to the other historical feature in this letter. And that's actually found in verse 15 and 16, when Jesus speaks about the hot and cold water and the lukewarm water. Laodicea, for all of its wealth, for all of its industry, for all of its power, actually didn't have a natural supply of water. And so they shipped water in. They, they, they piped it in through aqueducts. And there were hot mineral springs in Hierapolis that were piped to Laodicea. And there were cold water springs from Colossae, which were also piped to Laodicea. I don't think I have to tell you what happens to hot water or cold water if it's piped over long distances over the ground. It ends up being lukewarm, doesn't it? This is the historical situation for the Church of Laodicea. This would have uh, spoken really loudly to them because it picked up their very context and circumstance. But the question is, what is Jesus getting at? The traditional view has been that uh, the temperature is related to their uh, spiritual fervor or zeal. So if you think about it this way, the, uh, the hot is about being uh, on fire for Jesus. And, and that's surely a good thing. But this traditional view kind of falls down when you consider that Jesus says, I wish you were either one or the other. As if Jesus would rather that we were spiritually cold than that we were spiritually lukewarm. I mean, if we're talking about a scale, certainly we'd like to be spiritually hot, but lukewarm must surely be better than cold. And I actually think that what Jesus is getting at goes beyond spiritual fervor. It actually gets to the purpose of hot and cold water. When you um, are stiff and sore, feeling a bit sick, is there anything better than a hot shower or a hot bath to allow the tension to ease out of our muscles, to just feel that refreshing, soothing of the heat? There's, there's a value in hot water. But if I were to offer you, if you were stiff and sore, and I said, listen, I've just drawn a lukewarm bath, that'll make you feel better. And the reality is I'm not sure anyone would want that. It's hot water or nothing. There's a soothing, healing feature of that. Likewise, you've been working out in the garden all day and it's hot outside and I come out and I offer you a glass of lukewarm water. I mean, if you're really thirsty, you'll probably take it because lukewarm water is better than nothing. But in reality, the best thing I could give you, a glass of cold water. Hot water is soothing. Cold water is refreshing. Jesus says, I know your deeds. 
You are neither soothing to those in need of restoration and renewal, nor are you refreshing to those who are thirsty. You are, in effect, useless. And this is where I think this language of, uh, of hot and cold water and of the purpose of hot and cold water makes this final word really come to life for us. To the church at Ephesus, the first church, and, and, and for all the other churches, Jesus has drawn attention to their public witness. But here we have some insight into the why of public witness. I mean, why are we called to, to give public evidence to the fact that we are faithful and loyal to Jesus? Is it only so that we can say, yes, we were faithful? Is it only so that I can say, yes, whenever the opportunity was before me, I took it, I said what needed to be said, I did what needed to be done? Is, 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 the, only, uh, is the only outcome and fruit my faithfulness? I don't think so. The purpose of faithful witness to Jesus is that lives would be transformed by him. Our witness is not meant to simply be standing firm in public saying, I follow Jesus no matter what, as if it were only that confession that mattered. It's about extending the, the soothing nature of Jesus, the, the refreshment of the Holy Spirit to those who are in need that others might also receive from him. And this purpose then brings us back to the language of, of buying from Jesus. And then there's, I think there's two really important elements of this. On the one hand, um, you have the idea that we need different resources to bring about different transformation. Now, there is a place, and again, this is a, I think that this is up to our third application that would probably be valuable for us. But there is real value, isn't there, in physically providing for people's needs? I mean, there is a transformation that money brings to people's lives. There's a transformation that uh, providing for their basic needs in, in terms of representation by, by clothing. There's a real transformation of providing for their, uh, their immediate needs. There's a transformation that comes through uh, providing medicine uh, and medical care for people. But those transformations are not all that Jesus offers. He offers a much deeper, more profound transformation. I mean, how many people in our society have plenty of money, have taken care of all their natural needs, have the best medical care, but are still utterly empty? We need different kinds of resources for the work that Jesus is calling us to. And, and these resources are given to us freely. I mean, here Jesus does say, come and buy from me. Uh, but what do you think Jesus is going to charge for these sorts of things? In Isaiah 55.1, Jesus, well not Jesus, the Old Testament prophet speaking on behalf of the Lord, says, come, buy from me without cost. Buy without money all that you need, water and wine, the bread that you need. Buy all of this from me, but without cost. Jesus offers these things to us. We have to come to him to receive them. And I don't believe that the final purpose of the wealth that Jesus offers us 
or the clothes that Jesus offers us or the sight that Jesus offers us is meant to stop with us. Because once we have been given, we are then invited to also give, aren't we? In Matthew chapter 10, verse 8, as Jesus sends his disciples out, he says to them, you know, heal the sick and raise the dead and cleanse the lepers and drive out demons. Freely you have been given, freely give. What are we to do with the wealth that Jesus gives us? With the, with the clothes that Jesus gives us? With the, with the eye salve that Jesus gives us? What are we supposed to do when our sight has been restored or our nakedness and shame has been covered or our poverty has been overwhelmed with his generosity? Well, surely, surely we are to pass that on. To take what we have been given and extend that generosity. To take what Jesus has given us to the, to the fulfillment of our spiritual poverty and ensure that others enter into that same richness. To, to make sure that we're taking the robes that Jesus provides for us and to also cover the shame of those around us. That once we have had our sight restored, that we might help others come to Jesus and receive their sight as well. As Jesus finishes these seven letters, I think he provides us with a really important final word. The, the first church has emphasized the importance of public witness. And, and that's been kind of all, the same all the way through these letters. But finally here in this, in this last church, the words that Jesus have to say go to the heart of purpose. Why are we to be faithful in public to Jesus? Why should there be public evidence of our loyalty to him, evidenced in our love for him and our love for others? Well, it all relates to the purpose that Jesus has for his people. And it's not just to stand still and strong, but it's actually to extend life to our community. I know your deeds. You're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were one or the other. I wish you were soothing to those who need that soothing refreshment. And I wish you were cold. I wish that you would really kind of quench people's thirst. But, but you, you're neither. You, you're neither. And while there's benefit in thinking about the self-sufficiency, while there's certainly benefit in considering the value of using our financial resources to care for people's medical and physical needs and the opportunity that is to bring some transformation to their lives, Jesus is calling us in this letter to something I think much more profound. To recognize truly what Jesus has done for us to recognize the transforming power that has been at work in our lives, overwhelming our spiritual poverty, uh, covering over our shame, granting us the eyes to see, and then to recognize that Jesus then invites us into so much more than simply receiving from Him and then standing and saying, yes, I, I stand for Jesus. But he's inviting us instead to take what has been given and to pass it on. To be involved in the ongoing transformation of the world. 
to be involved in seeing others' sight restored, in others' nakedness restored, to see others become part of the family of God and receive from the generosity of our Father. This is the discipleship lesson from the, book at Laod- from the church at Laodicea. That we have been called to restore and renew in cooperation with Jesus all that is around us. And that we have been given the resources, or shall we say, that the resources are available to us to engage in that work. If we assume that our work is solved by physical resources, we miss part of what it is that Jesus calls us to. But if we turn to him and buy freely wealth, clothing, eye salve, we stand to participate in all that he is doing in the world. This final word, I think, gives us a, a framework with which to understand all seven of these letters. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The outcome of our public faithful witness is to invite others to follow Jesus and, by doing so, to be transformed. This is supernatural work and requires supernatural resources. Jesus urges us, through these words to the Laodiceans, to buy from Him all we need for the work He has sent us to do. Thanks so much for joining us again this week. Don't forget that you can find our discipleship menus for this series, a set of simple exercises designed to help us internalize these messages on our website under the Next Steps and Growing tabs. And join us as we seek to follow Jesus together. We'd also love for you to join us for our Sunday services at gbconline.org.au at 9.30 Australian Eastern Time or revisit our website at gamiabaptist.org.au for our on-site service times. Until next time, God bless. God bless.